Welcome to this episode of the Ghost Stories podcast featuring Charles Savage, the Chief Executive Officer of Purple Group as my guest. As many of you will know, Easy Equities is an important brand partner to Ghost Mail. However, this has never and will never impede my independence when it comes to commenting on the Purple Group share price, its strategy, and how I think the company is performing. I hope you enjoy this podcast and find it informative regarding Purple Group's latest numbers. I would certainly encourage you to reach out to Charles Savage directly on Twitter with any further questions and as always do your own research and remember that an appearance on ghost stories is not an endorsement by me of a share price welcome to this episode of ghost stories it's a cold and rainy monday in cape town it's been a cold and rainy sense for some in the past few days i'm excited to have the ceo of purple group charles savage here with me charles thank you you've always been so keen to engage with you know i suppose the ghost mail platform and all of the listeners and the readers i think you've You've always been so great at sharing, you know, your views on the Purple Group strategy, unpacking the numbers with us. Um, I always disclose this right up front that Easy Equities is an important brand partner to Ghostmail. I think what we do is very symbiotic. I also equally remind people that that doesn't make me any less independent in terms of commentary on the Purple Group share price. We've had our discussions on that before, which makes it fun. But thank you for making time today on a busy results day and not an easy results day. I'm keen to unpack some of this with you. It's always good to... Uh, debate or discuss and deliberate the results specifically with you and your platform to other investors. You know, hopefully the transparency we give uh, shareholders and prospective shareholders gives them enough information to make their own conclusions. Ghosts always about transparency, right? Even the purple ones. So I think let's get straight into it, Charles, because I've only got you for about 14 minutes. You've got a very, very busy day. So obviously I've worked through the numbers. First thing I just wanted to say was kudos to you guys on the level of disclosure. I think there is a lot for people to sink their teeth into. You know, I was reading it earlier today, you know, when I managed to find some time and I think you almost need a couple of days with those results to actually sink your teeth in. So well done. I think you've given the investment community a lot to work with. Yeah, thanks. And, and it's, you know, we debated this at length because there is a balance between too much transparency or too much information rather than transparency. And I think... The summation that we came to was people who read through the detail and come to the same conclusions that we do and become shareholders or the, the shareholders we want. And so for us, it's about ensuring that everyone has the, the, the same level of access and information as everyone else to make the right decisions um, and that we don't get you. We cannot be stand accused of not giving access to everything. And uh, I'm very proud of the advancements we've made in our annual report uh, and results over the last you know, two years, and this is another build on that. The transparency level is exceptional, and in, if you like, it gives away some of our competitive advantage as well. Um, but I'd rather be fair to shareholders than worry about competitors. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good report. So I'm going to comment on something first, and I'm keen to really get your views on it. So obviously, one of the things I picked up in the numbers is it looks like retail outflows as a percentage of assets actually fell in this period, which I was a little bit surprised by. So what that means is people are, in relative terms, pulling out less than they were in the comparative period. So that was pretty cool. Obviously, the challenge is people are not putting money in anywhere near as quickly as they used to. And I think we just need to look around us to understand the macroeconomic environment in which you are operating. I mean, we've seen out of transaction capital, the challenges in the taxi business, you know, people are struggling to pay for transport, people are really struggling with food inflation. So your average revenue per user has come off because I think people just have less money to invest in the market ultimately. So I just wanted to ask you what trends you are seeing in, you know, sort of your lower versus higher value accounts. And for example, in the Capitec partnership, you know, how much of that is translating into profitable new users as opposed to just new users? Yeah, so 
I mean, we're seeing exactly what you've kind of highlighted in the consumer base, and that is that the effects of inflation and return to work and the inflationary effects on the return to work, so it's much more expensive to go back to work now than it was three years ago, um, are impacting people's ability to save and invest. And because that impact, we feel that impact directly, and there's nothing we can do to avoid it. You know, we can't change the economic circumstances we find ourselves in. What we can do is build a more resilient business over time that isn't impacted as much by those factors. But what we're seeing, and we've, we've, it's not only what we're seeing in the data, we also did surveys to our customers in the period, and we've asked them, you know, what's happening in your lives that's stopping you from going on investing at the same levels as you did before? And 100%, it's around the inflationary effects um, are on them in their cost of living. And the other impact is that wage inflation is well below real inflation. So you're not getting real economic growth um, in the retail consumer. So that means that deposits are under pressure, which, which is a, it's, deposits drives about 30% of our economics. So deposits are down kind of 50%. So that's obviously going to have a, an undesirable impact on our income because deposits translate into money on platform and money on platform translates into investments. The second impact point is that in a market environment like this, where there's a high degree of uncertainty, what should I buy? And there aren't that many answers and there's no clear winners. The opportunity to change into different assets is also diminished. So people are sitting on their assets rather than changing their portfolios because there's no kind of obvious choices in this you know, recessionary world. And then the third, which and so those are both negative impacts on our income, i.e. less deposits, less flow coming in, less confidence to make new investments of people sitting on their portfolios longer. That's kind of the bad news, if you like. The good news, which you've highlighted, is that the store of wealth that our customers are creating for themselves on our platform, they are protecting. So they're not drawing on that to fund their lifestyle. They're finding other sources to fund their lifestyle. Um, and maybe they're just cutting their cloth, you know, even leaner. Or alternatively, they're using other forms of capital credit to fund their lifestyles, but they're not drawing on us. And that's a huge positive indi indicator for you know, our customers' ability to save and invest in, in tough times and their resilience to stick to those you know, commitments, even when you know, inflationary pressures are putting them under a lot of pressure. So you know, we're seeing it, and it's, and it's hurting um, in our economic model. But I think people have to reflect, you know, the first truth is, it's a cyclical business. There's no denying it, and why would we try and deny it? Two is, the market cycles tend to look like this. Seven out of every 10 years you know, is feast, and three out of 10 is famine. And we've had a really good run over the last eight years since we launched Easy Equities, and we've operated an environment where you know, people were, had the capacity to save and invest, and that's driven really good economic results. And we're in a tough period now. And in a tough period, it's a good time to reflect on your business model, and make it more resilient and invest in making it more resilient. And so our focus has to shift towards, you know, increasing the level of resilience. Sorry, power failure over here and power back on. Perfectly, uh, perfectly timed, in fact. <laughs> As we talk about the resilience yeah. required in this country, they, you know, there goes your power there we at, go. at the office. In and out. Incredible. So to bring that to the Capitec question, and it's not really a Capitec question, but they represent that segment of the market. The effects of the recession, um, or inflation rather, are much harder felt the lower down the income brackets you're in. So, you know, people who worry about the cost of petrol are the, are the people that, who earn the least. You know, it has, the, it has a much greater impact on their income. 
and people who are at the top of the income bracket. Now, 40% of our customers are in that top bracket of income. So they, the effects on them are much less felt. Yes, they're feeling it because typically they have more debt and the inflationary effects on interest rates is definitely meaning even they have to reduce their, their savings and investments in, in favor of servicing their debt, things like house, you know, mortgages and, and credit cards. But the effects are much more hard felt the lower down um, the income brackets you go. So someone, and this is, this is a typical easy equities investor, typically our customers earn 15 to 20,000 Rand per month and they save pre-recession or pre-inflation, they were saving one paycheck a year, so 8% of their income. Now, if you put that number into context, that means they were saving around 15,000 Rand a year. Return to work on its own eats up all of that 15,000 Rand. Forget about the basket of goods that have been affected by inflation, their own interest rate costs, costs of food, costs of everything else. And so the fact that they're still saving, uh, because they haven't stopped, you know, still 2.9 billion flowed into the platform, and there was still a huge amount of activity just at reduced levels over previous periods. So they're still saving, and they're saving about 20 to 30% of a paycheck now in this really tough environment, which I think is kudos to them. It shows their resilience and commitment um, to their long-term investment goals. So I think, yes, there's some, there are some cyclical negatives that we must deal with and strengthen the business model and focus the business model in the future around creating that resilience. But the good news is we've got more customers, more partners, more assets, uh, and our customers are displaying a level of resilience that no one believed in. I promise you, let's go back eight years. Everyone would have said in this market environment, we would have less customers, less assets. Everyone would have you know, withdrawn, and that's not happening. So, you know, I'm really positive about what we're finding out uh, in this recessionary environment. That doesn't mean I'm trying to deny the economic impact of this, of what's going on. What I'm saying is there are lessons from this that are both positive and negative, and the negative one let's learn from, and the positive ones uh, let's, you know, take some lessons from that as well and see if there's some strategies to even make that better in the future. Yeah, so Charles, I must say, you've always had this vision for being able to deliver this kind of product to people at all income levels, actually. I mean, it's a wonderful thing you've done. And, you know, I, I sometimes take a bit of heat on Twitter and people say, oh, you know, you're a big fan of easy equities. Yes, I am. You know, unashamedly so. I think that what you've done in the South African market is really, really impressive. Now, obviously, you know, from a financial perspective, you've got to make money from this. Of course, it can't just be a social outreach then, and it's not. But I suppose the lesson maybe from the Capitec partnership, and then if I read through into your discovery banking partnership, which you sound very happy with in your latest results, telecom not working. So, you know, you need those telecom customers because, you know, they can't cancel with telecom. They'll never cancel with you. We know this. Now I'm just being cheeky. But obviously your, your critics, uh, I suppose those making a bear case for Purple Group long term would argue that the user base is kind of deteriorating from a unit economics perspective as it grows. There's almost this long tail of low value accounts. Now I guess the point is the cyclicality comes into it. So in a tough time, I think that's probably a very fair criticism or comment. I guess in a better time, that long tail then picks up its savings rate and you know you reap all the rewards of that, I guess would be the answer. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, so there are lots more long tail customers than there are high value customers. Um, and so if you can build a profitable business from that long tail of customers, then the weight of those customers times their unit economics are going to create a much bigger outcome than focusing on the high value customers or putting in services that disrupt your ability to go and service that long tail. So let's just take an example because I've seen some of these on Twitter. Like let's charge a monthly fee. 
Okay, so we charge a monthly fee and we exclude our, we get lazy with the business model and we exclude ourselves from servicing millions and millions of South Africans who can't afford to start their journey with 10 Rand a month. Uh, as an example, 120 Rand. Nearest comparable stockbroker charges, I think, 120 Rand a month. So we're saying 10 Rand a month. And we would that would exclude us from that market opportunity. It also creates, in my view, a lazy business model that says, aren't there other ways, cheaper ways of servicing this customer base? And if you look at the economics of the group over the last five years and further back, you'll see that our cost to serve continues to go down, which means creates three very strong strategic assets for the group. Um, and, and this is what I mean by being lazy. This is the opposite of being lazy. This is being innovative and driving, and, and being an innovative, driving up, uh, driving new market opportunities for us. So the first in, as the, as the cost to serve goes down, our profitability from existing customers goes up. That's cool. So we, we're able to extract a higher margin from them. And across a normal market cycle, 10 years, we should expect to see very similar economic unit economics that we've seen in the last eight years uh, from our customer base. So the second point is that as that cost to serve goes down, um, we onboard customers to be profitable faster, which means we can open up markets that were previously unprofitable because our cost to serve is much lower. So the more we innovate around this cost to serve, the more markets, the more opportunities we can go after in South Africa, in Africa, anywhere in the world. And then the third uh, one, uh, which I think is probably the most competitive edge we've got, is the lower it, the cost to serve these customers is, and the broader the access points we've got to distribution. And if you think about our distribution, take Capitec, take Telcom, take Discovery Bank, uh, take Satrix, who am I missing, Bitvest, and you add all of those up, we've got runways to about 60% of all South Africans. Now imagine being able, being able to have your, your billboard up on the roads of 60% of the roads in South Africa. We have that capability now in our business. And as this cost to serve goes down and we broaden the audiences that we take onto the platform, we have the right to launch new products and services to them. And the cost to launch those new products and services is close to nothing. You know, if you comparably... Let's just take something like, I want to launch an insurance business, which we're doing in the process. My cost to build that product is probably between 5 and 10 million rand. And then my cost to launch that product to millions of South Africans and put that product up on the highway of 60% of South Africans is close to zero. That strategic advantage is not understood. And that's the, the benefit of not getting lazy with our business model and doing what is the obvious answer. The obvious answer is charge them more. No. That's how the industry ended up where it was pre-easy equities. Let's charge the people who can afford these services uh, what they should pay at the exclusion of people who can't afford them, rather than saying, guys, let's innovate this business model and create a platform capability that is capable of serving everyone and that over time they become profitable. And the evidence of our ability to do that sits in two things. that are in our, It's in our financial statements. One is ARPU over a normal market cycle, trends up. And why does it trend up? Because asset values increase. And so as asset values increase, there's more to do with the assets, we make more money. And two, cost to serve is trending down, and in the result, profitability is, is improving. And so I hope people, you know, those are facts that are determinable from reading our income statement. You know, what opportunities that we're gonna deliver on those runways to growth or runways to customers? For now, we're focusing on credit, high value product for us and we'll launch that next couple of months. 
and we think that the insurance opportunity, the, the prize for the, for the biggest digital insurance business is still wide open, and we think we've got the best partners to deliver on that uh, opportunity set and the lowest cost to produce the product. So we're super excited about where we find ourselves despite the market kind of cycle. Yep, for sure. There's some really good stuff in there that people need to at least think about over the long term when forming a view. And it's amazing. I think Purple One is, is Purple is one of the most emotional shares on the JSE. People love it or they hate it. They just can't come up with an objective view, which is what I've always tried to to help do, but it is what it is. So just on that credit product, something that I was thinking about earlier, you know, when thinking about this podcast. Have you ever thought about doing, I'm sure you have, but would it be possible to do some kind of almost fixed income type solution? So for example, let's say I have money sitting on easy equities. In times like these, we know that for a lot of people, actually earning an 8% after tax guaranteed return is not a bad outcome at all. So the problem is at the moment, they can't do that through easy equities. You know, Is there a way to eventually plug your literally hundreds and thousands of users into some kind of savings product because i for example would love to be able to take any of the lazy cash i have sitting in my brokerage account and have it earning even if it was making six percent and you guys were making 200 basis points i'm more than fine with that you know and it annuitizes some of the revenue it's a great um, opportunity and one that we're close to launching so we've been working we've partnered a south african bank and essentially what we're doing is taking a strip of government bonds um, fractionalizing them into a single product uh, so that all South Africans can get government bond yields uh, without having to fork out two, I think the minimum size on a government bond is two million um, rand. And we will launch that product in the next quarter, so super excited about it, which will give you access to that yield. I mean, government bond yields, a strip of government bond yields are giving you between kind of nine and 12% in the current environment. And so, you know, we'll charge an asset management fee on the product uh, and make some revenue on it, but fundamentally exactly solve that problem. Because we're not a bank, you know, we can't go into the savings space, but uh, we think that the government bond product will address that need. Um, and we also, interestingly, we're most likely going to launch it as a token, so as a crypto um, coin, because we think that's the best, you know, application of that technology, is to take a product like that uh, um, and deliver it through a crypto coin or through Easy Crypto. Yeah, very interesting. Cool. Well, that's that's good news. I like the fact that that's potentially coming down the line. And I think I want to move on now to the actual shape of your revenue, if that makes any sense. So, you know, everyone believes that Purple is completely reliant on retail investor activity. And goodness knows there is still a lot of reliance. But I was quite surprised when I looked through the numbers in great detail. So I'll pick out two of them. So the first one is 53% of the easy equities revenue base is based on activity. So that means someone actually trades. That's just over half. And retail revenue is 63% of easy equities revenue. So, you know, the first thing I guess I want to understand is how are you making money to the extent you can talk about it other than through brokerage, bluntly. Now, how is easy equities making almost half its cash from something other than me hitting buy or sell? Yeah, so um, we have fees that are associated with asset values across the businesses. So let's, let's pick on Easy Properties as an example. Easy Properties charges a platform fee um, in order to look after and manage those assets on behalf of the customers, and it charges 60 basis points per annum. And so it doesn't need people to transact. In fact, it doesn't want people to transact. It wants people to hold their assets you know, until such time as those assets are, are returned. Um, that is true of other businesses in the group. So as an example, Rise, which will be rebranded 
uh, easy retire in time, looks is a custodian uh, and administrator of pension fund assets. And in order to do that, it charges an asset-based fee rather than a transactional fee. So those are two examples, and there are others. I mean, bundles on the Easy Equities platform, the asset management product where you can buy a portfolio that attracts an asset-based fee, not a transactional fee. So across the group, we, uh, we have different, uh, different platform fees, asset management fees, administration fees that we apply, and those generate that other 47% of revenue. The other one, the biggest one, which I've left out, is that we look after the cash and custody of our customers' assets and we charge a, we charge a, a commensurate fee to look after their cash on the free cash that sits on the platform. And of course the rise point is really important, right? Because that's now consolidated in the numbers. So that's part of why institutional revenue has jumped so much, but also a lot of the costs around serving institutions would also be the rise consolidation, I think. So when you define institutional revenue, I think it's worth just spending literally a couple of minutes, I suppose, explaining to the investor community, you know, rise is something quite different to the rest of easy equities. Like exactly how does it actually work and target these institutions? Who are these instos? The insight I'd like everyone to understand is at the end of institutional money is just another retail customer. So that's, it's still, you're still servicing the same base, same needs, same wants, same desires. We're all trying to, you know, retire wealthy, I guess. And so, but there are two routes to get to market. There's the direct to market, which is the easy equities brand. And the best analogy I've got for us is we're kind of line fishermen. We've cast one line out, we get one fish if we're lucky, and you know we reel it back in and turn that into a customer. Um, the other approach is to go the institutional route, which is where is to target large pocket schools, if you like, of retail customers that are owned by virtue of a relationship they have, an employee um, or a union or something like that. Uh, and target them as a single. So think of it as a trawler that throws a net around a single opportunity of fish and then hauls all the fish in. And so RISE seeks out those institutional opportunities. So let's use Capitec as an example. They're not a customer of ours, but Capitec has somewhere near, I think, 15 or 30,000 employees. I can't remember the number. But if we took over the pension fund administration on behalf of Capitec, we would onboard 30,000 customers as one customer, assuming that all 30,000 staff. Uh, on that pension fund. Now the lead times to get that kind of deal done to move those assets on board are long and arduous. You know, they do, it takes six to nine months on average to convince trustees to move a pension fund. But the rewards are significant. You know, Easy Equities on boards on, in the last period onboarded about 30,000 customers per month. This one customer, if you onboarded Capitec, would produce that same outcome. Um, and all of the assets come along. So that, that's the difference. At the end of the day, still the same customer, same needs, same wants, same desires, just two different channels to market. And Easy Equities has grown up on, as being line fishermen, you know, go and catch your own fish and build your own brand doing it. And Rise or Easy Retire has, been, has relied on finding corporates that have large bases of customers that need, to be, that need uh, their asset service, their pension fund or retirement asset serviced. Yeah, B2B models are very, very powerful if you can get them right, because of course the selling process, yeah, you just need one big success, as you've perfectly explained. I like the analogy of the line fishermen and the trawlers. I like that a lot. So uh, moving on, I mean, you've talked about easy properties. I think you must be pretty happy with that. Um, you might want to comment on that, but I think the one that I do want to pick on a little bit is, is easy crypto, not pick on necessarily, you just take note of, you know, there was a big jump in client numbers there, which I thought was interesting. Assets only down 8.3%, but revenue down 40%. So there's an example of how activity-based fees, I guess, um, you know, the asset value is just sitting there. It feels like 
is it right to say people are sitting on their hands a little bit in the crypto space? They're not trading as much as they were. I mean, it's interesting to see the big jump in user numbers given a lot of the volatility we've seen in crypto. Yeah, so I mean, kudos to, I'm going to talk both businesses, Easy Properties and Easy Crypto, both of them doing well uh, in the current environment and both leveraging their access points to the Easy Equities distribution in a way that's helping them build their businesses faster. Um, in, in specifically as it, as it applies to Easy Crypto, you know, this is, this is a tough time to build a crypto business. You know, the crypto winter is all around us. But the best businesses, I think, are built in the worst of times. And so this is, it's great to see the results. You know, the assets aren't down that much. And we charge an asset management fee on the, on the indices that we run, the tokens that we run. So the, the, the asset management fees are down commensurately. So they would be down roughly 8% on the previous periods. Um, but the activity, as you've noted, you know, again, activity really comes from two things. One is volatility and two is investor confidence. And it's a perfect storm when your volatility levels are sort of medium to high and you have a high degree of investor confidence because people in volatility creates opportunity and investor confidence gives people the confidence to buy into that volatility. And we're at, we've got exactly the opposite of those two things. So there is the volatility is low to medium right now in uh, on crypto. It obviously was very high, but that very high degree of, of volatility destroyed investor confidence. So now you're sitting in a crypto world where there's low volatility and very low investor confidence. So investor activity is at its kind of worst. But you know the bet we've taken on Easy Crypto is a bet on two things. One is we think that the future of financial markets will include a substantial portion for crypto, and we're making access to that universe of assets much easier for everyone. And the second one is a bet on the technology. We think blockchain is going to disrupt all asset classes and that ownership structures will be transformed to digital registries like blockchain in the future. And we've got, you know, Easy Crypto brings us that capability. And this bond product I referenced earlier is a great representation of what we can do by taking old world assets that are cumbersome and difficult for retail consumers to transact in, well, impossible to buy a retail bond unless you've got another retail bond, a government bond, unless you've got two million of capital. And by taking the blockchain, tokenizing it using Ethereum, we can deliver it to customers who've got one rand, can suddenly now own a part of a government bond. Yep, very, very interesting. I wanna to touch on the Philippines. So obviously that's a big growth push for you guys and Charles, we did a Ghost Stories podcast a few months ago. I can't remember exactly when it was last year. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about how you thought about entering that market. I would encourage anyone who's interested to go and listen to that. I think it was a great show. And you shared a lot of insights there about how you, you know, chose the Philippines, how you think about international expansion, etc. I can't actually recall if the Philippines had been announced by then. It doesn't matter. But you talked a lot about how you thought about going there. I guess one of the things that are, again, and I'm, I, I like to play the bear case back to you because it's nice to get your comments on that. So one of the things that, you know, a critic might point out at this stage is the Philippines was, I think, 15 million bucks worth of startup costs in this period, which is, uh, it's about 12% of your expense base. I think I did the numbers quickly earlier. It's quite a big investment, particularly at a time, I think, where it's quite tough economically, et cetera. You know, someone might point out to you, well, does this mean that maybe, you know, you're struggling with the economics in South Africa, you're looking for something bigger? What would your response be to critics who say, you know, should you be focusing your time and money on the Philippines right now when South Africa is not an easy place to do business? I want to rewind eight years ago. Um, you know, if you go look at our income statement back then, uh, when Easy Equities was born, it was a it was a 90 million rand income statement. 
and we lost 19 million rand in the first year that Easy Equities was around. And Easy Equities delivered a whole 500,000 rand of revenue in that same income statement. And you know, everyone back then said it would never work, you'll never scale it, you'll never make money from it, and, and, and. You'll never get users out of whatever. Okay. And I think, you know, let's just put a tick behind that. We've been able to scale a business that no one believed in. Um, and, and, and so we proved them wrong then. But the point is, we, our shareholders have enabled us to take relatively large bets on the future. And I'm gonna say relative, relative to our income statement, they're large bets. You know, so a 15 million rand spend, as you've just said, 12% of our income stand, that's a relatively large bet. But let's just contextualize it for a second, and we'll talk about the market opportunity in the Philippines. Firstly, it's less than a, it's less than a million dollars uh, to set up in, in a jurisdiction um, that has has got runways to 120 million people, so it's two, you know, two times the size of South Africa. Economically, though, 65 million of that 120 million are economically active, i.e. they employed and earning salaries. In South Africa, we all know that's the opposite way around. You know, we don't have anywhere near that economic activity levels. Two is, we have access to a partner, and we've now announced it, who, has, who gives us, we've partnered, not have access, we've partnered GCash, who provides us access to 70 million of those 120 million opportunities without raising one cent of marketing money. So the one and a half million dollars, one million dollars that we've spent in setting up this so far and will continue to spend is it gives us access to 70 million Filipinos without spending one dollar of marketing money. And there is no competition. So I saw some comments on Twitter like, why go to Southeast Asia where there's more competition? Well, go do your homework. There isn't a single regulated enti entity in the Philippines that is legally targeting Filipinos. And we'll be the first, you know, and I hopefully, you know, I'm right in that. We've been working really hard. We've got the right partnerships. But even if we're not the first, we've partnered the biggest. We've partnered the Capitec of that market. Um, and so we're obviously very excited about it. It is a significant bet relative to our income statement. But it's that's we're not we can't slow down our ambitions or our growth aspirations just because of the market cycle we find ourselves in. So if this was two years ago and the unit economics of our customers were exactly as they were two years ago. You and I wouldn't be having this debate. It wouldn't have shown up. You know, people would have gone, geez, great profits. It's showing up because in this cycle, the unit economics are deflated. And as a result of that, this stands out on our income statement. Now, if you're going to let the market cycles dictate when you make your investments, then I'm afraid you're going to be too late. You know, you can't, you've got to, the opportunity is there for us now. We've partnered opportunity and we must deliver on it. And so it's a significant bet um, for sure, but it's one that's taken with a lot of caution and a lot of consideration. And we would never have made it if we didn't have the partner secured. I mean, we told the market that the partner was secured, I think eight months ago in September. So we've had security knowing that we've got the right partnership. And so we put our money down uh, and now we're going to be, you know, focusing on launching. So... And, and again, the South African economy, this is a question I saw on Twitter, is the runway in South Africa for the formal workspace that holds up the tax base of the country is between five and seven million people. Um, and you, 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 can e you immediately reduce that down to like three or four million people that, are in, that, real, that really hold up the tax base. And so we've got a million of those customers already. And so our runway for growth is kind of 3x in terms of that direct, that first base, uh, the focus area for us. And so 
we, the business is going to be here a lot more than three to five years. And so opening up new markets that give us new runways for growth is important when you can see the exit signs on growth in South Africa. You know, so we've, you know, three to five years from now, there won't be growth through customer acquisition. There will be growth though through product. And so where else have we spent our money? We spent our money on extending products so that we can deliver more ARPU um, on this customer base. So, you know, I'm happy to be criticized for making these investments, but the truth is this, our conviction is high and we think, and our shareholders are supportive. These aren't, you know, these aren't decisions that management made on their own. Our shareholders are supportive of us making these investments in future growth. And for those who aren't sure, ARPU is not what you say when you read the trading statement. It stands for average revenue per user. So that is something uh, entirely, entirely different. Sorry, Charles, I chose to make that joke as you took a drink that you nearly choked on. Um, <laughs> and I've got you for a few more minutes. I've been able to hear some of the reminders coming through on your laptop. I think they'll come through on the recording as we you've got a busy day with these uh, results out. So perhaps one more from me, I think, while we've got time, and this is a big one. Um, You've pointed to a 150 million rand potential capital raise that may be coming through. I was debating this earlier with a few people. I'm not sure you'll be able to comment on it really, but it would be interesting nonetheless to try and pick your brain on it. I'll be surprised if it's a rights offer. I have my own suspicions that it might be a private placement or it might be something to that effect, some strategic investor coming through. Maybe it's time to flick Sunlum to the top. I know you can't really comment on any of this, but uh, this is a 10% of Purple Group market cap potential capital raise, market cap as it is today, and your share price is under pressure, we can't deny that. What will that 150 million rand achieve for the group? What does it look like by the end of that process? When you've spent it all, what does Purple Group look like? Yeah, so let's just, you know, let's use history as a, as a reference point. I mean, eight years ago, and it wasn't quite eight years ago, I think it was six years ago, we raised 100 million rand to fund easy, easy equities. Um, and you know, back then the entire market cap of, of the Purple Group was about 200 million. And so, you know, we kind of 10x'd. We, we raised 100 million and we 10x'd the value because remember 30% of easy equities is held outside of the group. So we took 100 million and we created, you know, more than 10x, probably 15x uh, return on that 100 million. Uh, and let's understand the landscape that we'd raised that money in. Easy equities was tiny, it was insignificant. It had Satrix as a partner, that was it. Um, and I think at the time, it had, it's not think, I know, it had less than 50,000 customers. And so, but still we managed to 10 exit despite all of that. And so what do you think we'll do this time? I think what we'll do is more than 10 exit. You know, we've got three areas that we want to spend the money. The first is continue to, will increase the pace of growth on our South African assets. So, you know, if you like, spend more money on the business as is um, or business as normal. That's 30%. Another 30% will be spent on new products to deliver into our customer uh, distribution in South Africa to uplift average revenue per customer or ARPU. And you know, really you're seeing some of those products gonna come to market, credit and, and insurance. And then the other 30% is to invest on, in, on scaling the group internationally, starting with the Philippines and then into Southeast Asia for now. Um, and then reserving 10% just to be opportunistic and to be opportunistic around the fact that we think the longer this recession goes on, the more opportunities there will be to buy other depressed assets that may have just got their timing wrong. They might have built really good products, but were unable to scaling it and aren't resilient enough. And so they're going to walk away from those platforms or products and we'll opportunistically, rather than build the same product, maybe buy them. 
Um, and we've done that in the past. You know, we've done that with easy properties, with Rise, we've done it with crypto. So reserving some capital for acquisitions um, as well. And so in terms of the format of the raise, I'm happy to say, look, it's most likely going to be a rights issue. You know, Sunlum will 100% follow their rights at a easy equities level. And Purple 100% wants to follow its rights. And so the best way to do that is to ensure that existing shareholders are presented with that opportunity. We want, you know, we're very true to this. We want our existing shareholders to have the first rights to the opportunities that exist in the group. And so it's most likely that this will go to existing shareholders. So I just want to be super clear on that. So the 150 million is an easy equities cap raise, not a purple cap raise. Correct. It's all, the capital is 100% intended for the easy group, which is easy equities and its subsidiaries. Gotcha. That's an important nuance. Sorry, I'm sure it does say that in the docs. I probably just misread it earlier, which means I'm not the only one who misread it. So I'm glad we've dealt with that. Charles, I think that's really about all we have time for today. You've got a few minutes left. You probably desperately need to just go and have a cup of coffee on a very busy day where you've probably been back to back. Uh, any final comments from you on this at all that you want to just leave with the sort of maybe the easy equities investor base, but also just the users, anyone who's kind of, you know, seen what's going on on Fintwit, any passing words from you? And then I think we can call it there. Yeah, I think for me, the real ask is just read the results. Um, if you don't understand them, ask questions. Uh, or listen to podcasts like this uh, or others where the questions are asked and answered and then draw your own conclusions um, and make your own decisions. You know, you, I think the best investors will come from reading, the best shareholders, sorry, will come from reading and thoroughly understanding our results set. Uh, and even if that means that doesn't become sh they don't become shareholders, that's also cool. So yeah, that's my ask is let's, let's have debates um, both in the knowledge of the financials and the transparency that we're providing to those financials you know let's not degrade the conversation out of ignorance yeah uh, it's very well very well put thank you i think that's a fair reflection of some of the stuff that i do see on twitter i would also echo that and encourage people to just be objective i think what i tweeted earlier today is you know emotions have always been big around the purple share price and i've always been quite vocal that i thought it was a bit too hot um I've been proven right so far, but Charles, you've been proven right long term. You know, you've built something very special, I think. And uh, I continue to watch that share price with interest because uh, my time will come to jump in on it. We'll see, we'll see where it gets to and what happens. But thank you for engaging, for making time for me on a busy day for the Ghost Mail readers. I know I certainly appreciate it. They do as well. And good luck. Everyone's watching with uh, great interest, obviously. I think the overlap between the Easy Equities user base and the Ghost Mail reader base is enormous. So everyone has a vested interest in this. So all the best. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your interest anytime.